when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord Jesus. Stately clump back bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by Sinead Gleeson. Pretty country folk had few chattels then, John Eglinton observed, as they have still if our peasant plays are true to type. He was a rich country gentleman, Stephen said, with a coat of arms and landed estate at Stratford and a house in Ireland Yard, a capitalist shareholder, a bill promoter, a tide farmer. Why did he not just leave her his best bed if he wished her to snore away the rest of her nights in peace? It is clear that there were two beds, a best and a second best, Mr. Second Best Best said finally. Separatio a mensa et al talamo, bettered Buck Mulligan and was smiled on. Antiquity mentions famous beds, second Eglinton, puckered, bed smiling. Let me think. Antiquity mentions that stagey right school urchin and bald heathen sage, Stephen said, who, when dying in exile, frees and endows his slaves, pays tribute to his elders, wills to be laid in earth near the bones of his dead wife, and bids his friends be kind to an old mistress. Don't forget Nell Gwynne Herpillis, and let her live in his villa. Do you mean he died so? Mr Best asked with slight concern. I mean... He died dead drunk, Buck Mulligan capped. A quart of ale is a dish for a king. Oh, I must tell you what Dowden said. What? asked Best Eglinton. William Shakespeare and Company Limited, the People's William, for terms apply, E. Dowden, Highfield House. Lovely, Buck Mulligan suspired amorously. I asked him what he thought of the charge of pederasty brought against the bard. He lifted his hands and said, All we can say is that life ran very high in those days. Lovely. Catamite. The sense of beauty leads us astray, said beautiful in sadness best to ogling Eglinton. Steadfast John replied, severe. The doctor can tell us what those words mean. You cannot eat your cake and have it. Sayest thou so, will thou wrest from us, from me, the palm of beauty? And the sense of property, Stephen said. He drew Shylock out of his own long pocket. The son of a malt jobber and money lender, he was himself a corn jobber and money lender, with ten tods of corn hoarded in the famine riots. His borrowers are no doubt those divers of worship, mentioned by Chettle Falstaff, who reported his uprightness of dealing. He sued a fellow player for the price of a few bags of malt and exacted his pound of flesh in interest for every money lent. How else could Aubrey's ostler and callboy get rich quick? All events brought grist to his mill. Shylock chimes with the Jew-baiting that followed the hanging and quartering of the Queen's leech Lopez, his Jew's heart being plucked forth while the sheeny was yet alive. Hamlet and Macbeth with the coming to the throne of a Scotch philosophaster with a turn for witch-roasting. The lost armada is his jeer in love's labour lost. His pageants, the histories, sail full-bellied on a tide of mafficking enthusiasm. 
Warwickshire Jesuits are tried, and we have a porter's theory of equivocation. The sea venture comes home from Bermudas, and the play Renon admired is written with Patsy Caliban, our American cousin. The sugared sonnets follow Sydney's. As for Fay Elizabeth, otherwise Carroty Bess, the gross virgin who inspired the merry wives of Windsor, let some Mayan hare from Almany grope his life along for deep-hid meanings in the depth of the book basket. I think you're getting along very nicely. Just mix up a mixture of theo-lelogico, philo-lelogical, mingo, minxy, mictum, minger. Prove that he was a Jew, John Eglinton dared, expectantly. Your dean of studies holds he was a holy Roman. Sofla minnanandus sum. He was made in Germany, Stephen replied, as the champion French polisher of Italian scandals. A myriad-minded man, Mr. Best reminded. Coleridge called him myriad-minded. Amplius, in societate humane hoc est maxim necerium ut sit ancita inter multus. St. Thomas, Stephen began. Ora pro nobis, Monk Mulligan groaned, sinking to a chair. There he keened a wailing rune. Pogue Mahone, a kushla McCree. It's destroyed we are from this day. It's destroyed we are, surely. All smiled their smiles. St. Thomas, Stephen, smiling, said, whose gore-bellied works I enjoy reading in the original, writing of incest from a standpoint different from that of the new Viennese school Mr. McGee spoke of, likens it in his wise and curious way to an avarice of the emotions. He means that the love so given to one near in blood is covetously withheld from some stranger who, it may be, hungers for it. Jews, whom Christians tax with avarice, are of all races the most given to intermarriage. Accusations are made in anger. The Christian laws which built up the hordes of the Jews, for whom, as for the Lollards, storm was shelter, bound their affections too with hoops of steel, whether these be sins or virtues, old Nobo Daddy will tell us at the doomsday leet. But a man who holds so tightly to what he calls his rights, over what he calls his debts, will hold tightly also to what he calls his rights over her whom he calls his wife. No, sir, smile neighbour shall covet his ox or his wife, or his manservant or his maidservant or his jackass, or his jennyass, Buck Mulligan antiphoned. Gentle will is being roughly handled, gentle Mr. Best said gently. Which will? gagged sweetly Buck Mulligan. We are getting mixed. The will to live, John Eglinton philosophised, for poor Anne, Will's widow is the will to die. Requiescat, Stephen prayed. What of all the will to do? It has vanished long ago. She lies laid out in stark stiffness in that second-best bed, the mobled queen, even though you proved that a bed in those days was as rare as a motor-car is now, and that its carvings were the wonders of seven parishes. In old age she takes up with gospelers, one stayed at New Place and drank a quart of sack the town paid for, but in which bed he slept, it's skills not to ask, and heard she had a soul. She read, or had read, to her his chapbooks, preferring them to the Merry Wives, and, loosing her nightly waters on the Jordan she thought over, 
hooks and eyes for believers' breeches and the most spiritual snuff-box to make the most devout souls sneeze. Venus had twisted her lips in prayer. Agonbite of inwit, remorse of conscience, it is an age of exhausted whoredom groping for its God. History shows that to be true. Inquiet, Eglantonus, Chronologicus, the ages succeed one another. But we have it on high authority that a man's worst enemies shall be those of his own house and family. I feel that Russell is right. What do we care for his wife and father? I should say that only family poets have family lives. Falstaff was not a family man. I feel that the fat knight is his supreme creation. Lean he lay back. Shy, deny thy kindred the unco guid. Shy, supping with the godless, he sneaks the cup. A sire in Ultonian Antrim bade it to him, visits him here on quarter days. Mr. McGee, sir, there's a gentleman to see you. Me? Says he's your father, sir. Give me my wordsworth. Enter McGee Moore Matthew, a rugged, rough, rug-headed kern, in strassers with a buttoned codpiece, his nether stocks bemired with the clawber of ten forests, a wand of wilding in his hand. Your own. He knows your old fellow, the widower. Hurrying to her squalid death lair from gay Paris, on the quayside I touched his hand. The voice, new warmth, speaking. Dr. Bob Kenny is attending her, the eyes that wish me well, but do not know me. A father, Stephen said, battling against hopelessness, is a necessary evil. He wrote the play in the months that followed his father's death. If you hold that he, a greying man with two marriageable daughters, with thirty-five years of life, nel mezzo del camin di nostra vita, with fifty of experience, is the beardless undergraduate from Wittenberg, then you must hold that his seventy-year-old mother is the lustful queen. No, the corpse of John Shakespeare does not walk the night. From hour to hour it rots and rots. He rests disarmed of fatherhood, having devised that mystical estate upon his son. Boccaccio's Calandrino was the first and last man who felt himself with child. Fatherhood, in the sense of conscious begetting, is unknown to man. It is a mystical estate, an apostolic succession, from only begetter to only begotten. On that mystery, and not on the Madonna which the cunning Italian intellect flung to the mob of Europe, the Church is founded, and founded irremovably, because founded, like the world, macro and microcosm upon the void. Upon incertitude, upon unlikelihood, amor matris, subjective and objective genitive, may be the only true thing in life. Paternity may be a legal fiction. Who is the father of any son, that any son should love him, or he any son? What the hell are you driving at? I know, shut up, blast you, I have reasons. Amplius, ad hoc, iterum, postia. Are you condemned to do this? They are sundered by a bodily shame so steadfast that the criminal annals of the world, stained with all other incests and bestialities, hardly record its breach. Sons with mothers, sires with daughters, lesbic sisters, loves that dare not speak their name. Nephews with grandmothers, jailbirds with keyholes, queens with prize bulls, the son unborn mars beauty. Born, 
He brings pain, divides affection, increases care. He is a male. His growth is his father's decline. His youth, his father's envy. His friend, his father's enemy. En rue, Monsieur le Prince, I thought it. What links them in nature? An instant of blind rot. Am I a father? If I were, shrunken, uncertain hand. Sibelius, the African, subtlest, heresiarch of all the beasts of the field, held that the father was himself his own son, the bulldog of Aquin, with whom no word shall be impossible refutes him. Well, if the father who has not a son be not a father, can the son who has not a father be a son? When Rutland Bacon Southampton Shakespeare, or another poet of the same name, in the comedy of errors wrote Hamlet, he was not the father of his own son merely, but being no more a son he was, and felt himself, the father of all his race, the father of his own grandfather, the father of his unborn grandson, who, by the same token, never was born for nature, as Mr. McGee understands her, abhors perfection. Eglinton eyes, quick with pleasure, looked up shy brightly, gladly glancing a merry Puritan through the twisted Eglantine. Flatter. Rarely, but flatter. Himself his own father, son Mulligan told himself. Wait, I am big with child. I have an unborn child in my brain. Pallas Athena, a play, the play's a thing. Let me parturiate. He clasped his paunch brow with both birth-aiding hands. As for his family, Stephen said, his mother's name lives in the forest of Arden. Her death brought from him the scene with Volumnia in Coriolanus. His boy-son's death is the death scene of young Arthur in King John. Hamlet, the Black Prince, is Hamnet Shakespeare. Who the girls in The Tempest, in Pericles, in Winter's Tale are, we know. Who Cleopatra, fleshpot of Egypt, and Cressid and Venus are, we may guess. But there is another member of his family who is recorded. The plot thickens, John Eglinton said. The Quaker librarian, quaking, tiptoed in, quake his mask, quake with haste, quake, quack. Door closed, cell, day. They list, three, they, I, you, he, they, come, mess. Stephen. He had three brothers, Gilbert, Edmund, Richard. Gilbert, in his old age, told some cavaliers he got a pass for nout from Maester Gatherer one time mass he did, and he seen his brood Maester Wool, the playwriter, up in Lunnon, in a wrestling play, would a man on's back. The playhouse sausage filled Gilbert's soul. He is nowhere, but an Edmund and a Richard are recorded in the works of Sweet William. McGee Eglinjohn. Names? What's in a name? Best. That is my name, Richard, don't you know? I hope you're going to say a good word for Richard, don't you know, for my sake. Ha! Book, mulligan, piano, diminuendo. Then outspoke Medical Dick to his comrade Medical Davy. Stephen. In his trinity of black wills, the villain, shakebags, Iago, Richard Crookback, Edmund and King Lear, too bear the wicked uncle's names. Nay, that last play was written, or being written, while his brother Edmund lay dying in Southwark. Best. I hope Edmund is going to catch it. I don't want Richard my name. Ha! 
Quaker Lister, a temple. But he that filches from me my good name, Stephen Strigendo, he has hidden his own name, a fair name, William, in the plays, a super here, a clown there, as a painter of old Italy set his face in a dark corner of his canvas. He has revealed it in the sonnets, where there is will in overplus. Like John O'Gaunt, his name is dear to him, as dear as the coat of arms he toadied for, on a bend sable, a spear, or a steeled argent, honorifica billetudin in etatibus, dearer than his glory of gracious Shakespeare in the country. What's in a name? That is what we ask ourselves in childhood when we write the name that we are told is ours. A star, a day star, a fire drake rose at his birth. It shone by day in the heavens alone, brighter than Venus in the night, and by night it shone over Delta in Cassiopeia, the recumbent constellation, which is the signature of his initial among the stars. His eyes watched it, low lying on the horizon, eastward of the bear, as he walked by the slumberest summer fields at midnight, returning from Shottery and from her arms. Both satisfied, I too. Don't tell them he was nine years old when it was quenched and from her arms. Wait to be wooed and won. I, Meacock, who will woo you?